All right, we're starting here with Mishnah on Kuf Chaf Aleph Amud Aleph. Nachri Shiba Lechabot. We have a non-Jew who comes to put out the fire. Ain Omrim Lo You don't give him instructions to extinguish the fire. Ve'Al Techabe. And you do not have to ask him to desist from extinguishing the fire. Mipnei Ain Shvitato Alehen. You're not instructed to ensure that he keeps Shabbat. You have no obligations vis-a-vis the Nachri and his Shabbat. What you can't do is direct him. There's an Isra of Amira La'Akum, which is to instruct the non-Jew to do malacha for you on Shabbat, whether that's malacha doraita, whether that's malacha dirabanan, can instruct them specifically to do malacha on your behalf. But if he chooses to do malacha on his own, which is the case here, he's coming to extinguish the fire, there you don't have to stop him, but you also can't tell him to do it. On the other hand, the Balkatan, Shabbat a young child that comes to extinguish the fire, ain shomimlo, not permit him to do this, nay sheshvitato alehen, because there you are instructed to ensure that the child keeps Shabbat. There is a requirement that a Jewish child keep Shabbat, and since that is the case, you have to stop them, cause them to desist from putting out the fire, because we'll see why in Gemara. So there's a special dispensation with regards to a fire, where you can make a generic statement, which is, anybody who extinguishes the fire won't lose out. So you're not instructing anybody to do it, you're not guaranteeing any pay for it, but you make it known that if you do participate, if you do do this, you're not going to lose. That's special dispensation for the fire, and therefore, obviously, if the Nachri comes and puts out the fire, then you can pay him for it after Shabbat. Let's say our Mishnah is a support to this statement of Rabbi Ami. Because, Nanju comes to extinguish the fire in our Mishnah. We don't say to him, extinguish it, don't extinguish. Because you're not instructed to ensure his resting on Shabbat. We don't tell him to extinguish it. Ha! But you could say to him, anyone who does extinguish it will not lose. Mar says that's not a great deal because they must say for. What are you going to do with the next line in the mission which says, Al techabe lo says, oh, you don't have to tell him don't put it out. But, but you also couldn't tell him anybody who puts it out, because had it been that it was permissible to say that, the Mishnah should have mentioned that Chiddush that you're allowed to say it. The fact that the Mishnah omits it already is problematic. In our Mishnah, you can't be Medayek either way. Mishnah makes two statements. One is, you may not tell him to extinguish it. You do not have to tell him, don't extinguish it. This statement falls in between those two. So one of those two statements in the Mishnah is Dafka, and one is Lav Dafka. They are mutually exclusive. Be Medayek, the two statements, because there's something in the middle. Anything in the middle, we don't know what the Mishnah says about it. Because of that, our Mishnah brings no proof to this statement of Rabbi Ami. So it's an incident where there was a fire in the courtyard of the house of Yosef ben Simai. These individuals that belong to the government, government officials from Tibori came, in order to extinguish the fire. He was an important person in the government. He was, Rashi says, a treasurer of some sort in the government. And since he was a member of the government, government officials came from Tipuri to extinguish his fire. He was entitled to that benefit that they cared about what happened to his house. And he stopped them because of Kvod Shabbat. 
And a miracle happened. And it started to rain. And it extinguished the fire. That evening, meaning that Moshe Shabbat, he sent to each one of those individuals that come from Tzipori to extinguish the fire, he sent them pay. Because they had come. He's the one who stopped them from extinguishing the fire, but they shouldn't feel that they came for naught. And to their leader, or to whoever who was in charge of them, Chamishim, he gave them 50. So he paid them in accordance with their position and based because of their efforts that they made on his behalf. When the Chumim heard about this, he didn't have to do this. Because our Mishnah says, It's exactly our Mishnah. Our Mishnah says, you don't have to stop them. If they come, if they don't come, you can't ask them to come. So over here, they had already come already. He didn't have to ask them to stop. What's interesting is that the Gemara has two tzadim to it because the Gemara in the end says that Chumim said you didn't have to this, yet the story is told in a way which says, oh, and a miracle happened and the rain came and extinguished the fire, almost indicating that he did something that was proper in nature. It might be that it related to his position in power. The fact that he was a person of importance in the government might be that when they came, they came specifically for him, that they're really acting as proxies for him because of his position in the government. Even though he said nothing, he didn't ask anything, it might be that they are acting on his behalf because of his position in the government. And that's why he might have felt that it wasn't appropriate. The other thing to note is that he did make sure to compensate them afterwards so that they wouldn't feel there wouldn't be any Chilu Hashem from the fact that he had told them not to extinguish the fire on Shabbat and they had made the effort. Number one, not to dissuade them to come another time and if they, other people needed them. But also it's very important to ensure that there was no Chilu Hashem from whatever transpires on Shabbat or from Shmirat HaShabbat. So here is the Chiddush of the Mishnah. I read, this is what the Gemara is really focused on. From this statement in the Mishnah, we can conclude. If you have a youngster who's eating non-kosher food, Beitin mitzuvim alav the hafrisho. Beitin is required to stop him from doing as such. It's machloket in the Gemara in Miyavamot. It's the main sugi is in Miyavamot. Machloket about whether a katan ochel nevelot is Beitin mitzuvim hafrisho. Is there a general obligation on Kalaliso to ensure that Jewish children keep the mitzvot? So there the machloket is about Beitin. It's not referring to the father. It's referring to the tzibur as a whole, community as a whole. Does the community as a whole have an obligation to ensure that the children act in accordance with Allah? So that's a machloket. From our Mishnah, it sounds like that when it says, We are obligated to ensure that the katan keeps Shabbat. That Beitin has to stop a Katan from doing something that is Asur on Shabbat. Amar Rabbi Yocharan, maybe not. Our Mishnah is Bikatan Haoseh Ledat Aviv. Our Mishnah is talking about a case where it's a youngster doing it, Ledat Aviv, for his father. Wait a minute. It's a youngster doing it for his father. If the Nachri, if the non-Jew comes and does it, Aldat Yisrael, for the Israel himself, meaning that he's doing it so that the Jew likes him, or he's doing it specifically to engender favor in the Jew's eyes, then it might be problematic, which is what I mentioned before with that case with the government official, why by Yosef ben Simai it might have been problematic even though they came on their own. But over here, if you create a parallel case in the Mishnah where you say, no, we don't have to worry about Katan, you do have to worry about it. and now we're saying someone's doing it specifically to engender good feeling in the person who they're doing it for, here the child's doing because he knows his father wants it, the Nahri is coming to do it because he knows you want it. That wouldn't be so simple. The very answer is no, that's not true. Nahri the date de Nafshayavit. The Nahri is an adult and he's acting on his own he's acting out of his own volition. He can make his own decisions. He's not subject to the decisions of anyone else. He's not a minor. 
He is someone who can act on his own, and since he can act on his own, when he makes a choice to do it, that's his choice to come and do that. Rashi formulates it, Adat Aviv by the child, Bikatan, Shiodea Davrin. First of all, it has to be a child that is discerning. Shikibui Zenoach Laviv Osebishvilo. And he knows that this is going to make his father happy, and therefore he proceeds to do it in order to make his father happy. On the other hand, Nafri Adate Denashe Avid. Even if he knows that the Jew is going to like this, so this individual is going to like this, he still is selfish in nature. Human nature is to be selfish, look out for one's self-interests. He knows that even if he's doing it just to engender goodwill with the Jew, he knows that that's going to come back to him. Whether it comes back to him in compensation, whether it comes back to him in goodwill, the other way, the person assumes that what goes around comes around. Therefore, even if he does it, he does it with having in mind that he will also be a beneficiary of whatever happens. And so the Gemara makes such a differentiation. Now, the conclusion of this Gemara is very important, which is, what is the rule that comes out of this Gemara with regards to a Katan? Is a Katan who is obligated to stop them? And what are the implications of that? So the Rambam Paskins, based on our Gemara, that the only person that's mitzvah to stop the Katan is the father. Father is obligated to stop his child from doing something wrong. Beitin, or the Klal as a whole, is not obligated to stop them. That's what he reads and learns out of this Gemara between here and the Gemara in Yivamot, that the obligation of Chinuch, the obligation to cause a child not to do something, is only on the father and not on the Tzibur. Tosafot over here, it actually has two chidushim here which are important. He says it's on the wide lines. The wide lines of Tosafot, the last word on the line, on the wide lines of the bottom Tosafot, he says, Dibisura derabanan, muchach beperkeresh, de'ein beitin mitzuvim la'afrishol. But just like the Rambam, he says, that's true, beitin does not have to separate a child from doing something wrong. Benire demairi bekatan shalohi gi'alachinuch, very important line at Tosafot. The Rambam does not make such differentiation, but the Tosafot does, which is, it's talking about a case of a katan, shalohi gi'alachinuch. Child that has not reached the age yet where he needs to be trained in mitzvot. Once he reaches the age where you have to train in mitzvot. Then certainly when he reaches the age where he's a chinuch, chinuch involves separating him, causing him to separate. So here you have two important statements that are made by the Tosafot. One is that we're talking about in Yisrael de Rabbanan, there might not be any obligation to have baked in separate him. That's number one. But number two is he also gives an age range. And he says it's only But once he reaches then the obligation does devolve upon not only the parents but on the baked in as well. Stop the child from doing this. The Rashpo also takes a similar approach. The Rashpo in Yuvamot takes a similar approach to the Tosafot. The Rashpo adds in an additional detail which is, chinuch is only involved in causing a child to do action, not to desist from actions. So the mitzvah of chinuch is only to actively have children do things in order to engender their education. But to stop a child from doing something may not be the obligation. So he adds that little detail. As well as the fact that one is permitted to give a child something that's asumi darabanan, safi lebiyadayim, you can do it actively, as long as it's for the benefit of the child and not the benefit of the one who is performing this. So what's an interesting question here in the B.O. Omer, Havad Yosef is discussing a question which comes up a lot with children, which is, When you eat meat, you have to wait six hours after you eat meat. To eat cheese and milk. Do children also have to wait the six hours? 
So he writes over here, and it's based on our Gemara, just what we just discussed now. He says, Umiu, Tanim yesh makom lomar, sheb shel da'akel, but Tanim, there's room to be mekil. Kinei yadua ma shenechluku ha-poskim, bi-isur derabanan, Ishari, the misfilebi yadayim. But Yisrael Devanan, can you feed the child directly with your hands? Not only do you not have to stop him, that you can actually give him something that's an Yisrael Devanan. Moshe Gadav, Marana Beit Yosef, or Chaim, Shin Mem Gimel, Vezel Shino, Uli Inyan Yisrael Devanan. When it comes to Yisrael Devanan, Katavaran Biyoma, Shkoshu Lutzorech Atinok, anything that's for the benefit of Dinok, even though he's reached the age of Chinuch, Said that But a Rambam, the Rambam says, Which is what we saw from this Gemara. The Rambam does not differentiate between Isurei the Rabbanan and Isurei the Raitan. Doesn't differentiate between Higiel the Chinuch and Shloi Higiel the Chinuch. Rambam says it's a Sur. To bring a book on, from Shabbat, below the age of Chinuch, and ask a child to bring it, in our case here, of the milk and meat, since there is a machloket, and there are many who are makeal with milk and meat, not to wait the six hours, but similarly to brush your teeth well, rinse your mouth out, scrub out your mouth. Hello, Haim. And he goes on to list a whole list of Bishonim who believe that. Like the Ramah brings that only waited one hour for meat and milk. And to actually feed an Isu Durabban and be a daim there, those are Mekio. Of like Haim's fake Sveika. Vazlin and the Kula comes like a fake fake. You have a suffix in the din of actually waiting the six hours. Plus you have a suffix whether even if you didn't want to wait the six hours there was an Isu Durabanan maybe you can give the kid the item directly. So based on that he says he wants to be Mikio for Ketanim that they can eat with less than six hours. And here he's mentioning Ketanim Children have yet to reach the age of Chinuch then we can be much more Mikio with them in regards to milk and meat. He has two things. He has one is that the six hours isn't such a strong position meaning that we have those that dissent in that opinion already. And then beyond that, we have a machloket here with regards to whether you have an obligation towards a katan shaloi gyal Put those two together, then you could give a child to eat milk very close after eating meat. They won't have to wait the full six hours that an adult would wait. Big issue comes up with Shabbat a lot. They're asking children to do milacha on Shabbat. So in general, the Mishnah says it pretty clearly. And again, the parents have an additional obligation to the child. Not like they did, an additional obligation to the child to ensure that the child does the proper thing. So once a child's reached the age of Chinuch, then there's nothing to talk about. Because even according to those that are Mekiel, when they get the Chinuch, already we have those that descent. Even though the Rashba and others say by Yisrael the Rabbanan, it's not a problem. But if you're talking about over the age of Chinuch, then we would normally not say it. Below the age of Chinuch, if you instruct the child to do it, then we see from the Mishnah that there it's an Yisrael the Oraita, but maybe even with an Yisrael the Rabbanan it would be problematic. If the child does it, knowing that he's making the parent happy, or knowing that it'll make the situation better, that's a question, do you have to pull the child away in that situation? Over here, Tosafot seems to indicate no. The Rashba clearly believes that you don't have to do it. And again, the Rashba and the Ran believe you can even have them do an Isu Durabanan directly. If it's only an Isu Durabanan, then you can have the child do it. You can ask them to do it. 
You don't even have to just let them do it on their own. But again, when sh- turning on lights and shutting off lights, where you might be involved in Isu Doraita, there already it involves a different step, a different issue. Definitely problematic probably to tell them, but if they do it on their own, then you have to think about whether you have to stop them or not stop them based on the different scheme that we've seen today. All right, the next Mishnah. One can turn over a kara on top of a lamp that is burning so that it won't catch fire on the beam above. On the excrement of a young child, in order that he doesn't get messed up in it, people don't step in it, you can put a bowl upside down on top of it. And you can put it on top of a scorpion so that it should not bite you. So the Kiddush in the first two cases is that you're taking a bowl that's not muksa, and now you are utilizing it towards something that is muksa. And by doing that, the bowl will lose its utility on Shabbat now, because you're now locking it into place. So that's the problem in the first two cases, because I would have thought that you may not be able to utilize a bull, something that's muksa. The answer is that you can utilize it for something that's muksa. The latter case, which is that of the akrab, is a problem of tzad. You're actually going to trap a scorpion on Shabbat. So it's permitted over here because it's preventing the scorpion from biting you, which at least becomes a mlachashen suyuch of the gufa, and then the gemara will see it might even be more than that. If the oil is already in the lamp, Taking the oil out of the lamp, that's called extinguishing. That's a problem. Over here, where the wood of your ceiling was not supposed to be a part of the firewood, then preventing it from getting there is just denying it more fuel, which is fine. There was this incident that happened in Rabbi Yochanan Zakai in Arabia. This person who trapped the Akrav, he says, I'm worried about him in terms of having to bring a Chatat. I don't know if he was over the din of Tzad or not. The question really arises here. So what's the question? It is Rabbi Yehuda, so maybe it is problematic. Over here, the question was, it wasn't chasing him to bite him. It was a scorpion that was there, but the scorpion wasn't chasing after him to bite him, and yet he still put the bowl on top of it. So over there, it's a question of that is considered to be tzad, or is that considered to be okay because it's a scorpion? And again, the Gemara will discuss all of these issues. Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yirmiya, Ba'ava, Rabbi Hanan, Ba'ava, Avin, Demin, Nishikayo. So they went to visit. These three Amoraim went to visit the house of Be'avin. The Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yirmiya, for those two Amoraim, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yirmiya, Aito, Lehul, Paraito. They brought for them beds, couches to sit on. Rabbi Hanan, Ba'ava, although Aito, they... For Rav Khan and Barava, they did not bring him a couch to sit on, to lay on. And in their day, we're dealing with a very hierarchical society. And so, only those that were of a certain stature got to sit up on the couches, everybody else sat down on the ground. But for Rav Khan and Barava, that was also an indication of what they thought of his stature. And he took offense to it. Ashkechei Matnile de he found Avin teaching his son. The reason that you can put a bull on top of the feces of the young child is to prevent the young child from getting messed up playing with the feces. I'm like, Avin the fool is teaching foolishness to his son. Obviously this was a result of his feeling that he had been insulted, affronted by the fact that they hadn't given him a bed, so he's responding with stronger language towards Avin. Why do you have to do that at all? You could just carry the feces out of here. Why do you have to leave the feces in place and cover them up? You could just remove the feces because they aren't muksa. Why aren't they muksa? Because dogs would eat it. It's a food item for dogs. 
Wait a minute, this is no lot on Shabbat. You could say something is Muchan when it was there Ben Hashemashot, it was there before Shabbat, and then it could be really for a dog, it could be right for human consumption, and it's not Muksa. But this is only generated on Shabbat. The child only defecated here on Shabbat. That's called no lot. That you can't say is Muchan. Vatanya. We have a brighter that says this type of item is considered to be Muchan because Arot Amoshim, Mayanot Anovim. You have rivers that are flowing, springs that are erupting. Harihain Karaglei called Adam. They take on the properties of whoever takes that water. But what we see from here is that a river that is flowing, even though the water that's here now was not here before Shabbat, was not within the Tchum before Shabbat because the river is flowing. Nevertheless, because what we call it Ati Lavo, by nature that water will come. You can anticipate that water before Shabbat because the river always flows and therefore any water that's upstream is going to end up downstream. So even though if it wasn't here before Shabbat, wasn't in the Tchum before the Shabbat, you know for certain it will be in the Tchum on Shabbat. So since that's something that's a natural occurrence and will happen, that anticipation is enough to overcome the problem of nolad or to overcome the problem of muksa. And therefore one can take water, draw water from flowing rivers or from springs that are live. Because even though the water now is moving or changing, nevertheless, it's not called nolad because there's anticipation. The same thing here with the defecation of the child. That is something, the digestive system of a human being is a natural occurrence. And if one eats, the expectation is that the child will relieve himself on Shabbat. If that's the case... That's something that's anticipated and won't be considered muksa. So since it's Ra'u'i the caliph and it was anticipated, it's not muksa. So then you don't need to cover it. Just carry it out. She says, tell me how I should read the Mishnah. He says, Ema, Wait a Mishnah is, this is chicken feces and you're covering it so the child doesn't get dirtied by the chicken feces. But typically, Wait a minute. Why don't you just say it's a garbage? We know that on Shabbat, a urinal or some potty of sorts that they had in their day, you're allowed to remove something that is disgusting from the house on Shabbat because your house does not have to become a dump, doesn't have to become a garbage dump. So if there's something that normally you would remove, it's something that's unpleasant to have in the house, one's allowed to remove it. Even though it's muksa technically because it's not something that you want, not something to interact with, nevertheless, you're allowed to remove it because it doesn't belong in the house. So a urinal or a potty, in their day where they didn't have indoor plumbing, you were allowed to remove whatever was in the urinal or the potty on Shabbat because that's Gurafshorei, it's disgusting, and you don't have to maintain it in the house. So the same thing here, the chicken feces should be no worse than a Gurafshorei. If that's the case, you should be able to carry it out. If you want to say Gurafshorei agav mano in iugufelo, talking about a Gurafshorei, where I just described, there's a potty or a urinal. So maybe the reason you're allowed to carry out what's inside of those items is because they themselves are a utensil. You have the urinal or the potty itself, and then whatever's inside them is what you're trying to remove. So since they're inside of a kli, you can remove them. But if it was just the feces or just the urine, maybe you couldn't do it. That's not true. They found this nice little mouse, the bsamim, the spices of Ravashi. Grab it by its, I would have said whiskers, Rashi says tail. Grab it by its tail, throw it out of here. So the reason they threw the mouse out of there is because that's a graf It's disgusting that the mouse is inside of the spices. They told him to grab it directly and dispose of it, throw it out into the garbage. So there we see that even with Graf Shorei applies even directly to the object that is considered to be the problem. You don't have to have it inside of a clay in order to deal with it. Mara says, okay, it's a case, the chicken feces is found in the dump. 
It's in the garbage. So if it's in the garbage, then there's no grafsha rate because it's in the garbage already. So you, can't, you don't have to remove it. But the Gemara asks the obvious question. If it's already in the garbage, what is the young child doing inside the garbage that you're worried about covering it up? It says, in the chatzer, in the courtyard. Not in the house, but in the courtyard. The din of grafsha rate doesn't just apply to the house, it applies to the courtyard as well. You don't have to just remove the garbage from the house. You, have to, you can remove it from the courtyard in general. You can get it out of the areas where you normally live. Where it says, it's the case by... Ashpa Shibachatzer. About a dump, something where you should put the garbage in the courtyard. So it's not a public put garbage outside of the courtyard area. It's within the courtyard, they, for instance, like when you have garbage cans or areas in the courtyard where the people kept their garbage until it was removed. It's a temporary garbage. So over there, you have a problem. Feces are found there, so there's no dispensation to remove them from the courtyard because it's already a little garbage area. So you can't call it a graf because they already keep garbage over there. On the other hand, the katan has access to it. Both to the public garbage dump outside where the katan usually wouldn't have access to it, wouldn't be allowed to go there. Katan's allowed to play in the courtyard. If he's allowed to play in the courtyard, he's going to end up going near that garbage area. And if there's chicken feces, there's going to get dirtied in the chicken feces, so you want to cover it up. So that's the situation where he describes in our mission. You can use a bowl to cover chicken feces that are found in a dump inside of your chatzer to stop the katan from playing with it. Because if it was dog feces, then it wouldn't be muks at all and you could pick it up. If it was in your house or in your courtyard in general, it would be a rain, you could remove it anyway. Not because it's not muksa, but because it's disgusting, you're allowed to remove it. So they came up with this unique case where it wouldn't be a rain, but you still worry about the katan playing with it, and that's where you're allowed to cover it up with the bull. So this is an important Gemara here. The Rishonim read the Gemara differently, and because of that, it has made enough gemino na'alacha, which is, all animals that damage or can cause damage can be killed on Shabbat. Now the Chiddush here, this is what Tosavah points out. We already have a mission that says that you can do the Melacha of Tzad. So Mani Tzad, Mani Horeg. Tzad is an Av Melacha. Horeg is Av Melacha, whether it's under Tzvi or whether it's under Shechita, whatever the Av Melacha is. With regards to Ariga, they're both Av Melachot on Shabbat. If the mission already told you that you can do Tzad on Shabbat to stop these animals from causing damage, then of course you can kill them. Why would you have to opt one for the other? So Tosafot here differentiates and says that Yitzchach Hashmina Dariga Nami Shirinin Datcha, we would have thought Dasira Mishum Mifarsima Miltotfei. It's more of a public act. You just take a bowl and you cover up a scorpion. That's a quiet act. You kill a scorpion. That's more of a public type of act. Even though they're both Isurim, both of them are Av Melachot on Shabbat, we might ask you to opt for one over the other because it's just a quieter way of dealing with the situation. So Tosa what said, had we just had the Mishnah, we would have thought, say, da yes, Harigah, no. So long comes the Bishu Levi and says, even Harigah is permitted. Question, and the Gemara is going to ask partly this question, but the Rishonim already asked, what is the situation in which he says this? He says, all Mazikim, you can be killed on Shabbat. Is this a situation in which the Mazikim are chasing him? He's in danger, and therefore he's allowed to kill him. Or is this even a situation where we're in a passive stance? Scorpion's in the area, but he's not attacking him. He's not causing him any danger. Did he say it in that situation? You can kill him anyway in that situation. That is a machlok Rishonim, but first we need to get a little more through the Gemara, see the Gemara's solution, then we'll come back and see how the Rishonim read this Gemara. Rav Yosef, How can Rabbi Shubin Levi say this? We have a brighter that says there are only five animals that you can kill on Shabbat. These are these items. Zvuf, Shabbat Mitzrayim, the fly that is found in Egypt. The wasp from Nineveh. Scorpion of Chadyav. The snakes in Eretz Yisrael. And a deranged dog in any place. Mani. 
who's the author of this Brita? Ilaymer Rabbi Yehuda. If the author of that Brita is Rabbi Yehuda, Ha Amar Malacha Shein Tzricha the Gufa Chayavaleha. This is a case of Malacha Shein Tzricha the Gufa. You're killing the animal not because you want the animal, not because you want the hide, not because you want anything from the animal. Killing the animal to prevent them from doing damage. The classic case of Malacha Shein Tzricha the Gufa. We know there's a Machlok between Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Shimon says that Malacha Shein Tzricha the Gufa is Patur of Alasur. Rabbi Yehuda says that Malacha Shein Tzricha the Gufa is Chayv Doraito. Osur Mina Torah. So if our Yehuda is the author of this Brayta, Amar Malach Shein Tzricha the Gufa Chayavla. Elav Rabbi Shimon. If the author mentions Rabbi Shimon, then Vahani Hu Dishari Achrin Alo. We have a case here in the Brayta. We only have five that are mutar to kill, not anything else. Because Rabbi Shimon and Levi must be speaking in this position of Rabbi Shimon, because again he's talking about killing an animal on Shabbat to prevent damage. If that's the case, it's a Malach Shein Tzricha the Gufa. So Rabbi Shimon and Levi has to be subscribing to the position of Rabbi Shimon. And he's saying all animals you can kill. On the other hand, here we have a bright that's saying it's only five animals. And they're both saying this Nashita Rabbi Shimon. That's a problem. So I'm Rabbi Irmia. Who says that this Brita is a proper Brita? Maybe it's a incorrect, improper Brita. We don't see the Gemara say this all the time. Rashi points out over here. Certain Brita have a distinguished level which we don't question their authenticity or their authority. That is any Brayta that comes from the base Medrash of Rabbi Raboshia, Tomidim of Rabbi, who, if we have Brayta from them, we don't question the authority or authenticity of those Brayta. Brayta that come from somewhere else, there we have questions about their both authenticity and authority. That's the case here. Who brought the Brayta here? Meitav Rabbi Yosef. It's a Brayta that's brought from Rabbi Yosef. So we don't have that type of stamp of approval with regards to this Brayta, and that's why the Gemara is willing to question, or Rabbi Yemir here is willing to question, whether this brayta is at all correct. Remember, Rav Yosef, so Rav Yosef sponsors him. Anamadina law, I have this brayta in hand. Votivna law, I, I brought it and I was asked a question on it. Vana mitaritzna law, and then I'll answer the question. Meaning that I'll try to reconcile between the statement of Bishub and and the brayta that I brought. Biratsu acharav divrei hakol. It's a case where the animals are chasing after him. And divrei hakol. And that's according to everybody. What happened here? Which way did he answer? He says, they're chasing after him, and it's Divri Akol. Divri Akol means it's going to both be Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Yehuda. Even Rabbi Yehuda is going to agree in this case that you're allowed to kill them because Pikuach Nefesh. You're in danger of life and limb. Everybody agrees that you can take care of the situation. The only question is, which of the two was he explaining? Was he explaining the statement of Rabbi Shuban Levi? Or was he explaining the Braita? Which one is he saying is a case of Ratzim Macharav? So there's a Machlokidir between Rashi and Tosafot how to read this. So Rashi says, the low Tikshik, Yama Rabbi Shuban Levi, Rashi says that the case is a case of Rabbi Shulman Levi. We thought in the, in the first place that Rabbi Shulman Levi was talking about a case that ain't Ratzim Macharav, when they weren't chasing him down. And he says you can kill all Mazikin, even if they're not chasing you. Bigger bright that it says you're going to kill these five when they're not chasing you. The answer of Rabbi Yosef is that Rabbi Shulman Levi is not talking about a case where they're not chasing you. It's talking about a case when they are chasing you. And Rabbi Shulman Levi says when dangerous animals, and when you're in danger and you're being chased, you can kill them. According to everyone, you can kill them. Rabbi Shulman Levi's statement is only made when you're in danger. The bright though, it's time at a case even when they're not chasing you. When they're not chasing you, you only have a dispensation with regard to these five animals. That even if they're not chasing you because their danger is imminent, or they are by nature mazikin, you can kill them anyway because their next step is going to be to cause a problem. So you can kill them anyway according to Rabbi Shimon because it's a malacha. That's the way Rashi reads the Gemara. That Rabbi Shimon Levi is a case of Bikuach Nefesh. The bright is a case of Ein Ratzin Acharav. 
Tosafot, on the other hand, says, he brings the Perish of Kunchich Vikasha, and then he says, Venira Luri, the Faresh, the Luri says, Brighta, Biratzin Acharav, the Divreakol. The Brighta is a case when they're chasing him. The five, the five animals is a case where they're chasing him and he's in danger. And that Brighta is according to Rabbi Yudah and Rabbi Shimon. Because when those five animals are chasing you, then there's real Pikuach Nefesh. Real Pikuach Nefesh. Then we say you can kill it even according to Rabbi Yudah. What does that imply for Rabbi Shuvan Levi? That implies Rabbi Shuvan Levi is even a case when ain't Ratzin Acharav, when they're not chasing him around. That's what he says. Aval Shar, Asur Lorgan, Afilu Aratzim Acharav, Rabbi Yudah. According to Rabbi Yudah, even other animals that are chasing you, you may not kill them. It's only these five that are chasing that you can kill them because there's real danger. Other animals, you're not. Rabbi Shuman Levi, Rabbi Shimon. And Rabbi Shuman Levi subscribes to the position of Rabbi Shimon. The Shari Shar Afilu Be'ein Matzina Charam. They're matter even other animals when they're not chasing after you. This is a big, big nafkamina. Huge nafkamina lo'alocha. According to Rashi, in the end, Rabbi Shuman Levi is limited to the case where Ratzina Harav, where they're chasing him down. That means the only case you can kill an animal when it's not chasing you and endangering you is when you're talking about those five that are mentioned in the Brighta. On the other hand, Tosfet has the other way around. Tosfet says that any animal, according to Rabbi Shubin Levi, Ratzina Harav, you could kill it if it's a dangerous animal, type of animal that will cause danger. That's the way Tosfet learns, that's the way the Rashba learns. Many of the other Rishonim learn this way, like the Tosafot. They explain it by saying, again, I mentioned this before when we were describing what Rashi said, that the danger is imminent. That these are either animals that nature is to do damage, and therefore they're just awaiting doing damage, or that we anticipate them doing damage to others, and therefore you're acting on behalf of the cloud. Not only are you protecting yourself, but you're protecting anybody who is around because this animal will attack someone that's there. The Gemara now is going to follow up with a number of stories from Amoraim. Some will say that it was a good idea to kill them. Some will say it's a bad idea to kill them. And that's what Tosafot concludes with the end. Venir the Ri, Chaim Perjrach, Shein Lahakel Rabbi Shubin Levi. The Ri and the Rabbeinu Hanan will say we shouldn't be making Rabbi Shubin Levi. Elokei Hanhu Amorai to the command. Lo Sharla Bedrisa Levi Tumal. Because we have Amoraim that are coming up that are going to say maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't. We see a little bit of hesitation amongst the Amoraim to be matir like Rabbi. And therefore, Tosafot seems to back away from that explanation in Rabbi Shuman Levi, La'alacha. The Rambam in the end, Paskins like the Rashbo, the Rosh, and the Tosafot before the Tosafot narrows his Chidush. And therefore, he is lenient and says, you're allowed to kill these animals even if they're not pursuing you, no matter what, on Shabbat. What's interesting about the Rambam is that the Rambam also Paskins like Rabbi Yehuda. The Malacha Shein Tzricha, the Gufa, is Chayav. And despite that fact, the Rambam says, over here, that's not an issue. I heard in the name of Rab Rosenzweig that what's taking place in this Gemara, what seems to be happening in this Gemara, is that we're reaching a point when one traps the animal to protect themselves, or to stop them from doing hezek, that's not even in within the world of trapping. It's no longer the Malacha of Tzedah. You're so far away from Tzedah that you're actually in a new category, a new category called protection. And that category is not even a Malacha Shein Tzricha the Gupa. It's mutter the gamre because it's not even close to a malach on Shabbat. We had something similar back on Daf Kufiud Zayin Amud Aleph when he's flaying the hides off the animal over there. Tosfot says if you cut it into such small pieces, it's not even called flaying anymore. The same thing for the Rambam over here. On the other hand, the Shulchan Aruch Paskins is like the Tosafot and the more narrow perspective, and that one is only allowed to kill these mazikim when they present an immediate threat. Right, so now we're continuing the Gemara. Tani, Tanei, Kamei, the Rav Baravuna. Brought a bright before Rav Baravuna. Horeg, Nechashim, Vakravim, B'Shabbat. Someone who kills snakes and scorpions on Shabbat. In Ruach Hasidim, Nochemenu. Those that are righteous... They keep the, that are going beyond the letter of law, they're not so happy about him. They're not happy with this type of behavior. So has a nice, he has a nice witty answer. He says, Those Chasidim, 
the Chachamim are not so interested in because he says they're not doing anything wrong. That's not, there's nothing wrong with what those people are doing. So you see here this tension already between the Amoraim, whether they think it's okay to kill these animals or not. Upligid Ravuna. And this argues on Ravuna. Over here, who was this? This was Rava Baravuna. So Rava Baravuna seems to indicate it's fine to kill Nechashim Vakravim on Shabbat. Again, Ravuna is father says no, that that's not the case. Ravuna Chazilu Gavra, the Kakatul Zibora, he saw this gentleman killing a wasp. Did you wipe out the whole wasp population already? I mean, just killing this one wasp, what good is that going to do for you? There's a whole bunch more wasps that are going to show up anyway. Unless it's attacking you, why would you kill such a wasp? Just generically, I'm saying, without Ein Ratzina Harab. So you see Ravuna saying no, Rav Ravuna saying yes. If these snakes and scorpions came, Hargan, if he kills them, Yadush and Hargan. Then when they know that they were coming to kill him, and he was successful at killing him. Lo Hargan, if he didn't kill them, Yadush and That they were coming to kill him, and he was miraculously saved. So if you bring this statement alone, it sounds like you should kill them even without them attacking you. Because their nature is good to come and attack you and kill you. And the only reason they didn't kill you is because there was an intervention in Shemayim. They qualified as bright to say, it's a case where they're hissing at you. It's not simply that these animals are just hanging out here. It's a case where the snake is hissing at you and you know he's ready to attack. He's coming to attack. So even though he's not chasing you, you know that he is in a state of being where he wants to attack. And already there, that's the situation we're talking about here. So that brings you to a different level of pikuach nefesh or knowledge of an attack. There was one of these scorpions that fell into Beit Midrash. This Niuti is a person from Niyot, a Jewish individual in the Beit Midrash, for her go. And he killed them on Shabbat. So Rabbi makes a statement which it turns out to be cryptic. I'm sure Rabbi knew what he was saying at the time, but for us it's cryptic. It says, Pagabo, he killed him, Kiyotzebo, the Shemur like him. The question is, was he saying this? Ibailu, Pagabo, Kiyotzebo, the Shapiravit? In that he was complimenting this individual who did this and say there should be more like him who kill these types of mazikin. That's one way to read it. Or, no. Or maybe he was saying it cynically. Pagabo, Kiyotzebo, we need more like this guy who's going to kill these things on Shabbat. We don't know which way he went with that. Tashma, the Rabbi Ava, Brei, the Rabbi Bar Abba, Rabbi Zer, Rabbi Yatve, Akila, the Rabbi Yanai. They were sitting on the bed under the canopy of Rabbi Yanai. Nafak milta biminayu. They were discussing something. And from between them, this question was asked by Mine Rabbi Yanai. They asked Rabbi Yanai, Ma'ul arog nechashim v'akravim b'shabbat. You'll have to kill snakes and scorpions on Shabbat. Amadu, Tzira ani horeg. I'd kill wasps. Nachash v'akrav lo Certainly I would kill snakes and scorpions, which are the next level up in terms of danger. So Gemara says, Dilma lifi tumo. So here is the qualification that the Gemara says. Yeah, he might have killed them. But how do you know how he killed them? Did he kill them and go out actively and kill them? Or lefi tumo, tumo is from the word tam, Yaakov ish tam. Tam is someone who is doing things out of simplicity, not actively engaged in, but basically he steps on it. He's walking and he steps on the item. Tam Rabiuda, rope, if there is spittle on the floor, dorso lefi tumo, you can step on it. You can't actively go and smear the spit because that flattens out the dirt or the floor and it's mishavig gumot. But if you have to step on the spittle that's there, that's fine. Vam Rabshesh, nachas, dorso lefi tumo, if you happen to be walking, you could step on the snake, no problem. Remember, Katina Akrav Dorso defeat Tumo. And a scorpion you can step on without worrying about it. Rashi says, What does that mean to race the feet Tumo? Lo Shiamodala Viargeno, the hedge. You shouldn't go explicitly and go and kill it. El Tumo. He's walking along, and he sees a snake or a scorpion in front of him. He doesn't have to change and move away from there. He can step on it and move on. And if it happens to die from that, fine. Because he didn't intend to kill it. 
Even according to Rabbi Yehuda, it's only a din der Abbanan. And since it's a din der Abbanan, we waive it in the case of Mazikin. But Rashi says here is interesting, because he calls this Davashen Mitkavein. It's not exactly Davashen Mitkavein. You're aware of the fact that you're going to step on this scorpion or snake. When you step on it, you're fine with it dying or killing it, because that, otherwise you would have stepped aside or you moved away from it. But he still calls it Davashen Mitkavein because you're walking. Because you're walking there anyway. And so the fact that you step on it, it's called Davashen Mitkavein. It's an interesting formulation of Dover Shane of Bitcoin, but that's what Rashi says. Rashi says it has to be a case where you don't intend to kill it and you're walking along. The Rashba, on the other hand, says that you can intentionally kill it. Gemara here is not saying that you can't intentionally kill these items. You just have to make it look like you're not intentionally killing it. We don't want other people looking in and seeing it look like you are intentionally killing it. We want to make it look like you're walking and killing it. In order to not make a public issue out of it, we want you to do it in a way that is less than obvious. So the problem here is not the stepping on the animal, but rather other people seeing you killing the animal. And therefore, we'd rather you just do it in a way that looks like you're kind of oblivious and killed it in an oblivious manner. Again, a big difference between Rashi and the Rashi, but the way they explained it is Gemara. Abba bar Marta du Abba bar Minyumi. had borrowed money from the exilarch's house. They brought him in to shake him down. They were beating him up. They wanted to get their money back. There was some spittle on the floor there. And then, Bring a dish. And then cover it up with Shabbat. But bring up a bowl and cover up the spittle that's there because you can't move it on Shabbat or you can't wipe it out on Shabbat. He said to them, this You don't have to do this. Are we just said here, Rabbi Yudah says you can just walk around it normally. Oh, this guy's a young Tamar Chacham. Leave him alone. You don't have to shake him down. Well, get the money some other time. The candelabras of the house of Rabbi Mutar You're allowed to carry them around on Shabbat. Are we talking about lamps that are so heavy that it takes two hands to carry? We're talking about a lamp that can be carried even in one hand. The ones that are like your father's house. Your father's house are the smaller ones. But he's saying back to him that the smaller ones you're allowed to carry. Because the larger ones, people are koveya makom. People are makatze miadat, larger lamps, because they don't usually move them, they don't tend to move them. It's something that when you put in place, will stay in place, they don't move, and that's why it's muksa. So Safot says that those are beta vicha, shehem gedolim, okanim, it didn't matter if they were big or small, but the idle that they had markings or grooves on them, and therefore it looked like these were assembled on Shabbat, which is impermissible. So the, the answer that he gives them is that it's not a matter of big or small, it has to do with what the construction of the candelabra or lamp is. If it's one piece, even if it looks like it's made of grooves because of the markings on it, then it's fine. But if it's multiple pieces, then it's problematic. The Rambam, on the other hand, learns that Beit Avich means that they were big because Rabbi Zera's father was a governmental official and he obviously had a bigger candelabra. The rickshaws of the house of Rabbi, you can carry them on Shabbat. These rickshaws are taken by one individual or two individuals. The same ones that are in your father's house, again, the smaller ones. They can taken by one person, not by two people. 
Shemot Shel Nachri, Bechotem Echad. They allowed them to drink wine that brought by a non-Jewish delivery man with one seal. Vayadana, and I didn't know why. Im Mishum Tzavar Like Rabbi Eliezer. Does he hold like Rabbi Eliezer? The Gemara Vodah Zerah is Machloket whether you need a double seal or a single seal is sufficient in order to have a non-Jew bring whether it's kosher items, wine to a Jew, transport it from the source to the destination, and have it still be kosher. Is one chotem enough, or do you need a double chotem? Rabbi Lezer says you need one chotem. So I'm not sure why Rabbi Hanina was matir, because he holds like Rabbi Lezer. Oh, imishum emta de There's additional factor here with regards to the house of the Nasi, which is that they held some political sway. They were a, a governmental official, and therefore he was too scared to mess with even a single seal. For everybody else, they would need a double seal. But for the house of the Nasi, since they had this power, the Nachri was afraid to mess with it, and therefore they had a dispensation to use one seal in that case, but that would not be true for everybody else. It leaves it as unknown as to why Rabbi Hanina Paskin in that way. Okay, we'll stop over here.